Quite dressed for that stage. <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I flew into Auckland a couple of days ago. It was just fantastic. I um, gate crashed your fun run that the O'Hagan's Pub puts on. Um, that was cool. And then I found your comedy club. That was really, really great. So um, just to get started, because you know I know you're really stressed out, so let's just put your arms up. Woof. We had and, and take a deep breath, have a good smile. So now that I've biohacked your brain, um, I, we had a wonderful welcome. Really, it was beautiful. And now that I've biohacked your brain, I know you're going to be actually able to listen to what I'm about to say to you. So. Uh, I've been studying the brain for 30 years in different parts of the world and there, it's uh, really well known that we're getting fatter and that is because it's the predictions are that in Australia, and I heard this just before, 70% of people by 2025 are going to be overweight or obese, which is quite an out, you know, outstanding number. And uh, my talk today, I mean, obesity has many, many causes, but today I'm going to talk really specifically about fructose, um, which is one of the components of sucrose, right? Um, and the thing about it is we started to teach people fat was really bad back in the 60, around 68 it started. So we started to replace fat with sugar because it burns quickly, so it looks like it's low fat. And um, it's end up having a large number of consequences outside the weight gain. It also leads to a number of chronic diseases. It's, it's clear that the economic consequences for this are going to be huge. They already are. And I'm also American. I'm sorry about that. Um, and I lived there for 12 years. And over there, the food size and high fructose corn syrup has become embedded in all foods. It's not just sugary drinks. It's in, and to maintain your weight over there is very, very difficult because it's even in bread at the supermarket. So basically I, came, I started, um, I'm a neuroscientist and what I've noticed that's really absent from the conversation is neuroscience and the contribution to the development of obesity. We always talk about nutrition and exercise. What I'm gonna to show to you today, please don't go away alarmed but I'm going to demonstrate to you how sugar and alcohol actually change the physical and biochemical structure of the brain. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on is the neurobiology, talk about addiction. Um, but at the end, and just forgive me for this, but 
we always talk about addiction and sugar and alcohol, but there's actually a really deep underlying cause that's driving the increase in addiction, and that's related to multi-generational stress and trauma. And I want to talk about that because it's really the other side of the equation, and unless we fix that too, we're never going to really solve addiction anyway. So we all know that um, diets don't work in the long term, right? They work in the short term for most people, but there's been many scientific studies showing that most people regain weight in the long term. So this is where I worked. I ran a research lab developing medications for alcohol addiction at the Gallo Research Center, part of University of California, San Francisco for 12 years. Then I was recruited back to Australia in 2012 and I run a research lab there where we actually pull apart the brain, we label it with um, dye and we actually, we actually map and change, uh, map and measure all the morphological changes in the synapses in the prefrontal cortex, in the top part of the brain, the human brain, and down in the emotional part of the brain. And I just love my work. It's just, I just adore it. And I'm going to tell you what's, what's different now to say when I first started, you know, a long, long time ago, is that we actually have brain imaging technology now where we can actually pull the brain out and actually show you what's going on. Really, and this is getting, this technology is increasing at such a rapid rate that I really believe, and you can even see it in some of the technologies now with Muse and emotive bands, where we can actually show you your brain for the first time. And there's nothing like, and I just had this amazing conversation um, before this talk, it's, there's nothing like visualising something to actually understand it more so that we can drive changes. Now, what I'm, t what I'm showing you here is uh, the brains, and in red we're going to focus on the red down the bottom panel, what the red signal is looking at dopamine receptor um, function in a normal brain. Now, dopamine receptors are the receptors that, that make you feel happy. So when you have a cigarette or you have a can of soft drink, that hit that you get is a release of dopamine that binds to these receptors. So on the top panel, we're looking at the brains of people that are addicted to cocaine, alcohol and nicotine. Um, and in the middle, we're looking at the brain of someone with obesity, and what you're looking at is a decrease in the red signal. And what that means is it's a decrease in dopamine receptor availability for dopamine to bind to. So what does that mean for real life? It means that's why you need the third donut in the third week, because the first donut doesn't do it anymore. Same for alcohol, right? One glass of wine makes you feel good, but then you need three and then it escalates from there. So that's because you need to get more dopamine to give you the same pleasure. So I can't really see here, but what we're doing here is a demonstration of what it looks like inside the brain. We can actually now map and show you how sugar and alcohol is changing all the physical structures of the brain. There's a very, 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 very strong neurobiology underlying addiction. It's been studied for decades, thousands and thousands of people, millions of papers. There's a very, I'm going to repeat it, there's a very strong neurobiology that's understood underlying addiction. And that's um, a very, the pathway I want to really focus on today is from the emotional part of the brain, which includes the amygdala and the, nu and the nucleus accumbens. And it's one of the oldest parts of the brain. It's come about millions, over millions of years of evolution. 
in the top part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, where you've got these little synapses up here in the front of your brain, is really the most human part of the brain. And because it's not as well-developed, so to speak, we think we're really smart, but we've still got a long way to go, um, that part of the brain is actually highly susceptible to stress, highly susceptible. So just think of it about a bad day at work and you get home, what's the first thing you want to do, right? You stop thinking clearly under stress and that's because those synapses in that part of the brain are taken down and then the old part of the brain takes over and it drives our behaviours. So I don't have to spend any time to tell you that alcohol and nicotine is addictive, so I'm not going to. Um, but there is a common molecular mechanism, and that's this receptor called the neuronal nicotinic receptor, and it's an ion channel, and it sits in all of the membranes inside your brain, and that's what nicotine binds to. But we also have our own endogenous thing that binds to that receptor, and it's called acetylcholine. That matters for sugar, okay? This matters. Um, these receptors are spread in all of the neuronal pathways that drive addiction. And our lab was the first to show just a few years ago, we've now published this, that sugar actually increases the release of acetylcholine and binds to the nicotinic receptors in the brain, which is the receptors that nicotine binds to or alcohol activates. This was massively, shockingly surprising to us because I'm an alcohol addiction neuroscientist. I, we used sugar as the control in all of our experiments because when you're doing experiments, you've got to have control situations where you're mapping nearly every behaviour that's going on. And so we just use sugar to replace the alcohol. Um, we, we were also working with this drug called Veranoclean. I was working with Pfizer, and our lab was the first to show that this drug, which blocks nicotinic receptors, um, also reduces alcohol's ability to activate the reward system. So, um, we end up on Good Morning America for this discovery because it's one drug for two, one drug to treat alcohol and nicotine together. Um, and then we ran um, clinical trials uh, in, in real people and then a number of small clinical trials to show that veranoclene could reduce alcohol consumption, right? Um, which is all really cool and interesting. But sugar, come on, that's our control. So on my transition back to Australia, my collaborator at Stanford Research International calls me. We'd already set up this experiment to actually look at nicotinic receptor changes inside the brain. And she calls me and she goes, oh my God, you won't believe this, but the sugar animal's brain um, and the nicotinic receptors are changing exactly the same way that the alcohol is. And I'm like, oh my God, um, thank God we set up another control. No, <laughs> I know, selfish academic. Um, but anyway, so then I had my PhD student when I started in Brisbane go back and we actually had the animals drinking sugar for a really long period of time. We set up a bunch of other controls and we replicated this work over a number of years because we didn't believe it. And then anyway, we go on to show that that drug that reduced alcohol also reduces sugar consumption um, and also another drug from Eastern Europe called uh, cytosine. We also then show that the nicotinic receptors are changing in exactly the same direction that they change for alcohol consumption and for nicotine, because my collaborator is a nicotine expert. And then, as I said to you, we, we map all the physical structural changes in the brain for alcohol. Of course, then what are we going to do but ask the same question for sugar? 
And we've since published this, but basically long-term prolonged sugar consumption actually changes um, the physical structure of the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that processes stress and fear, and also of the nucleus accumbens, which is the part of the brain that's tied to the amygdala that drives the reward pathway. So, and these are just some of the experiments. I'm not going to take you all through them to bore you, but basically at this time, just saying, um, I was training for marathon, doing half marathons, right? I'd never done them before. So needless to say, after 12 years of running a big lab in America, I was very unhealthy and very overweight. And I know you don't believe me, but it's true. Anyway, so when these experiments came out, right, in my lab, I'm like, oh my God, that's disgusting. Because I love sugar. And whenever I do my little 19K training run, I'd reward myself with sugar. And at the time I was thinking, oh my God, why am I still struggling to lose weight when I'm doing all this running? And so the first thing I did was to reduce my sugar intake. And the first thing that happened, within one week, my appetite came back. I'd actually forgotten what it feels like to be hungry. And I know that sounds really strange, and I'm going to show you why. So I'm not saying that sugar is the main cause of obesity. I'm just saying it's one factor that plays into the development of obesity, because we know it's genetics, we know it's social environment, we know that there's lots of sedentary behaviour, we know that babies um, are inheriting through microRNA diet induced obesity from multiple generations. Um, and we know that sleep is another huge factor that plays into the development of obesity. But in terms of sucrose, it's made up of glucose and fructose, and I know you know this because you've listened to all those films because of the introduction. But what I want to talk to you about is the hidden properties in the brain. It's more, and why it's more than just the calories. First of all, it activates the fructose now of sucrose activates the hypothalamus. That's the part of the brain that senses whether you're hungry or full. And the problem is, it's telling you you're hungry and you're never feeling full. So, as, as you've heard probably before, there's this cycle of hormones that get released from the stomach that signal directly to the brain as soon as you eat something. And what does um, fructose do? But it suppresses those hormones. So when you're eating too much sugar, and it's now embedded in all food, most people are not even aware that we know statistically, in Australia particularly, that we're all eating three times the recommended amount of sugar because you don't even know it's in your food. Like if you go to a low-fat strawberry yogurt, it's made, you may as well have a can of Coke, um, for example. So it's inhibiting those hormones, right? So what that means is when you go to eat the next amount of food, you never feel full. And that was my, I never felt full. I could eat anyone under the table. Um, and the other thing that happens is that fructose, I could, trust me. I had a six foot seven, I'm now ex-husband. So um, <laughs> um, anyway, and the other thing that happens is fructose um, is metabolized by the liver, but because of the amount that we're consuming now, it's, our bodies can't handle that amount of energy. So, but because the body is a homeostatic device, and it's amazing, it's got this other little way of handling it, and that's called the adip you know, visceral adipose tissue, 
which is also called an adipocyte. So what does it do? The energy from that fructose gets stored in those cells and those cells multiply like cancer cells. So just sit and think about that for a second. Right, so they're multiplying like, and they're like gas chambers. So they're taking in all the gas that's coming. And then, it, then if you just say you're on a diet, then those gas chambers shrink. But then when you go back to normal eating, they're waiting there to expand. So once you've developed them, they don't ever leave. They just, but you can shrink them. So those three factors alone, like I think that's quite an amazing piece of knowledge that would be really well, you know, really nice for everyone to know. And we're not really aware just how much sugars become embedded in all of our foods. So that leads me to, okay, so you're going to work out and then you reward yourself with a frappuccino, right? And um, then what happens is that frappuccino, because of all its hidden properties, means that you now have to work out for about another 10 sessions to make up for that one 30-minute session you did on the treadmill. So the key takeaways from this are that sugar is activating the same brain circuitry that alcohol and nicotine. It's highly, highly addictive. Um, and I know people, and you're going to say that's ridiculous, but I know many people that are trying to come off sugar, they have all the same withdrawal symptoms that they have um, when they're coming off alcohol, for example. Um, it has a number of hidden properties, which means it's more than just calories. Because you know how we love counting calories. And that's what we do to people to help them lose weight. We help them count calories. But sugar is not calories. Sugar has all of these other hidden properties that are never taken into consideration. It takes down the synapses in the prefrontal cortex, which is the front part, human part of the brain. What sits in that part of the brain? Impulse control, executive function, right? So what's, what is addiction? It's an impulse control disorder. You can't, like, if you ask anyone that's highly addicted to heroin, they'll tell you that they're injecting before they want to be injecting, right? It's the same as sugar. You go to have one piece of chocolate, the next minute the whole bar's gone, for example. The other thing it does is it also activates the stress pathway in the amygdala. So even though it's relieving your stress in the short term, it's actually making you more stressed in the long term. That's what alcohol does to the brain as well. And lastly, in terms of the body, it changes the structure of the body because it's multiplying visceral. We're not meant to have visceral fat cells, but we now have them. We, used to, we normally have subcutaneous fat cells, but now we have visceral fat cells, and it's mainly coming from too much energy consumption. And it's not just fructose. Fructose is one component of that. It's also from an increase in food portion size. It's just so much energy that we're consuming now. And uh, I haven't got to talk to you about this today, but we're just about to publish. Um, we've just done work on, ble on glioblastoma brain tumours. And we've just demonstrated that we have an increase in our animals that are over-consuming sugar. We have a, a serious increase in tumour size and aggression and response to uh, immunotherapy. And that's also now being published in a science paper for colon cancer also. So and now I just want to switch quickly to this because I think this is really, really important, is that people are using sugar as a medication. And we talked about this earlier that, yes, we can get people to reduce sugar and smoking, but what are we going to give them instead? Because we have to. 
because people do use it to relieve stress and also adverse childhood experiences. And you're going to say to me, what are you talking about? Um, I know some of you in this room would have heard of this, but basically um, these, this is the underlying cause of addiction. One of them, there's many, but this is one that's very rarely talked about. But I've been trying to chase this for 30 years, and when I discovered this work, I basically retooled my whole research lab into neuroplasticity. Um, and I'm going to show you why. So firstly, you have to ask yourself, do you know what's happening inside your brain when you're stressed out? Does anyone in this room know? And how many people woke up this morning and said, I wonder what brain training I'm going to do this morning? <laughs> I know that you might have exercised or you're having your banana or your coffee or whatever, but how many people are thinking about their brain and what they're going to do for the rest of the day to keep it in a really good, healthy manner? So this is really important because stress has been, like we're basically survival animals, we've been evolving for millions of years, and stress is just like sugar and alcohol, is actually, we've actually born pre-wired by multiple generations back to animals. So stress is predisposing the brain to depression, anxiety, and addiction later in life. But because it's so separated in time, we always focus on the sugar, the alcohol, and all of these things, but not the underlying cause. And so my argument is, unless we start to focus on both the cause and the issue, then we're not going to ever really solve the problem in the long run. This study was done by Andrew and Folletti at the CDC in the Kaiser Permanente in California. Now, this started in 1985. And there are now thousands of papers and replicated around the world. What they did was they started a weight loss study because America is even worse than most other Western countries in terms of obesity. And all the infrastructure in the hospitals had to be changed. Everything had to get bigger and it was becoming a big problem. So the Kaiser is a big health set of hospitals basically in California. So they thought about, let's deal with that. So 85, they started this weight loss study all these people started to lose weight and then they dropped out of the study. So they went and interviewed them and said, why are you dropping out of the study? You're being so successful. And they said, well, now you're having me deal with my trauma. And they went, what are you talking about trauma? You know, anyway, so then they reframed the whole study. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Each of you can get your own ACE score online at acesstudy.org. It's really simple. It takes 10 seconds. You do one or zero. And the bottom line is, in this study, um, these were all college-educated people, um, all, health, all had health care, for example. What they went on to show, and this has been replicated many places, is that it the larger number of adverse childhood experiences you've had, the more disrupted brain development, which leads to mental health issues later in life. And these are the sort of stresses that they measured. And these are the ones that they focus on. So the bottom line is that the higher the ACE score, the greater the prevalence of obesity. I'm only picking obesity, but basically I can show you the same graphs for alcohol, for IV drug use, etc. So can you, can you play the video for me? Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you're going to ask me, why does our brain do that to us? Does anyone know? So. I'm sure you've seen this video. <laughs> 
So, can anyone guess what's going on? Go on, go, go for it. There's a prize, there's a prize. I dare you. Yes, go for it. Yes, that's right. So, um, this is for you, by the way. <laughs> um, so, basically, the bottom line is that um, that part of the brain that processes that information is activated in milliseconds. So, that part of the brain shuts down the prefrontal cortex and escapes the threat, right, as fast as possible. And that's because the emotional part of the brain prioritizes that over happiness and pleasure. And that part of the brain, I can show you, is inside a mushroom. The circuitry that drives this survival operation is in mushrooms. So that's how old it is. Mushrooms just came after bacteria, right? So going back all the way in time. So stress leads to much greater brain reactivity. And you're going to say, what's this got to do with sugar addiction? Think of a hard day at work. When do you go to the vending machine to get the chocolate, for example? So um, it's a very old part of the brain, and the stress is actually wiring that part of the brain. So that part of the brain has been wired for millions of years. So you can, can you see how hardwired it is? Unless we teach and understand that, how are we going to get to the other issues which sugar is one of those. So when I say this to you, it's like, I believe that we definitely have to get rid of sugar and tax it, but at the same time, we have to also, and I mentioned this earlier, we have to come up with strategies to fill the void. You know, it's, if people aren't exercising right now, well, they're not just gonna go and exercise because you're making them have one less can of soda, for example, or whatever it's going to be. So this is just fundamental. I really want to drive big change, and I think this is all part of that. Okay, um, I like to call it Miggy because I like short names, but basically Miggy is both the problem and the solution, right? If we can retrain Miggy, we can actually help people learn new healthier habits, basically, um, to turn to. So you're going to say to me, but that's not me, I have a really great brain. I don't ever get stressed out, I don't know what she's talking about, so we're going to do a little test because um, I know that everyone loves tests because we're in the university and we're all really smart here, right? <laughs> okay, so here, you're not allowed to use your iPad, you're not allowed to write anything down, no iPhones, nothing. This is for your brain. This is to show how strong your brain is, okay? How resilient you are. Okay, so I'm going to give you a sequence of numbers and then I'm going to give you a math problem because we're in the marketing department, it's going to be you know, the best math brains in the world. And then, <laughs> and then we're going to turn to our neighbours and say the number in reverse. So it's really simple. Okay, ready? Ready? Two, six, three, five, eight, one, seven, zero. 99 plus 3 is? Say it back to me out loud. 99 plus 3. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Now turn to your neighbour and say the number in reverse. <laughs> I 
Oh, thank you. Wasn't that fun? Now, here, here, see how laughter is the best medicine. So if we just replace sugar with laughter, that's what I'd say. We set up comedy clubs all around the whole suburb. Um, who would like to have a go at answering that? Volunteers, we, we have more prizes. So every answer is a good answer. Who would like to try? Go on, do it. Yes. Wow. That is for you. Oh my God. I knew people were smarter in Auckland because no one ever gets it right wherever I go. So congratulations. That's really great. You can come and get my book about sugar addiction. <laughs> anyway, so, what we, so let me just tell you what was happening there. First of all, I stressed out your brain by telling you you're going to do a test. Sorry about that, but I am biohacker. Um, everyone hates that word. And then I, then I did a distractor, which is the math problem, whereas people that are really calm will know all of this and they just sit back and they take a deep breath and go, oh, this is not going to be that difficult. I'm really good at math. You know, and they've got their little working memory all clear and then they take in the information. The working memory, why I call it, why I did that test, is I want you to feel your brain. Working memory sits up here in the prefrontal cortex. It's where executive function sits. And it's how you take in seven pieces of information and keep it there, right, and then remember stuff before it gets consolidated into memory. Now, when I stress you out, I stress out that old part of the brain, right, millions of years old, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex. There's a really strong pathway there, neural circuit, shuts it down, shuts off working memory, doesn't let that information flow in, except for this wonderful woman here who is, must be so calm. Nothing stresses you out, right? <laughs> you need to come up here and give some lessons. Um, but basically, um, so what, what happens in that? Um, three things, three responses from that old, uh, that old mushroom brain. One, you either want to freeze and say, oh, I'm math. I hate math. I am hopeless. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to you know, pretend I didn't hear that I had to do that. Right? So that's the freeze response, and that's like some percentage of people will immediately freeze. Um, and this is what the brain's doing. I'm trying to demonstrate in a really real way. The next thing is, oh, I think I might just go to the bathroom while this is happening. You know, just do a runner. And then the other one is like, why is she here? She's meant to be telling us about sugar. I wasn't here to do anything like this. That's really annoying. And, get, and people get really angry and aggressive, right? That's the three things that part of the brain really does. That's it. That's its job. It's really good at it. So the other thing that happens in that part of the brain is, so that's the amygdala area. Tightly wired in that part of the brain is the nucleus accumbens. That's where reward and motivation sit. So if the brain is not being trained, which the majority of people are not doing, because they've never been shown how to, then what it does is it hates all that stress because it actually, cortisol, noradrenaline, those stress hormones, actually kill off the synapses in the prefrontal cortex without training, right? And so the brain wants to, all its job is to keep you here and alive. So it's like, 
well, you're not going to do anything about this, so I am. So I, I need some dopamine and I need some serotonin and I need some oxytocin. So how does it get it? But it gets it from alcohol, from sugar, from gambling, from working, from, you know, that's why we're all addicted to something, right? Because the brain is so clever. It's a massive learning machine. It will do whatever you don't do, <laughs> it'll do. So I like to call it the brain scales of justice. And so what we need to do basically is by not by retraining our brain, we actually have to learn how to basically use stress, because it's never going away, to drive healthy habits, because the brain will then do it for you. And that's like a massive topic. But anyway, I just wanted to give you that background. So, but of course, every single brain in this room is completely different. And we have our genetic blueprint, which can explain at least 50 to 60% of what we do. But there's also this, the environments our brain grow up in. And you're going to say to me, but I'm different. Why in my family am I thin and my sister's not thin? Because the experiences that that brain and body receive are completely different, even if it's in the same environment. Lastly, we just demonstrated, not me personally, but was just published in Science. We always think of our genetic blueprint and epigenetics and how the, the environment rewires the gene expression which shapes our brain. We just discovered microRNAs actually hold memories. So we now know you can inherit memories for three generations. So this study demonstrated that men that were overweight during, during conception, that, that Obesity was, it was basically passed forward three generations. Three generations, right? So that's on obesity side. When you look at multi-generational stress and other things, then basically that's also being inherited at 10x the rate also. So you can see that the beauty of education and knowledge raises all boats. The more we know, the more we can make changes around. And I like simple solutions, and I really believe in education. I just want to thank you so much for listening to me. I've left a little bit of time for questions, but because um, I've, I've been a scientist in my, safely in my lab for 20 years, after I recognised the, the, uh, the revolution in brain imaging and neuroplasticity, because neuroplasticity can actually offer inspiration and hope because the brain can change forever. And I didn't have time to tell you about all of that work we're doing, but I started a podcast so I can actually start to get basic information about how the brain works to everyone. And then I wrote these books also. About, this one's specifically focused on sugar addiction and how to use neuroplasticity to reduce the impact of sugar on the brain and body. So thank you very much. Please, any questions?